0: I'm Kira Rodenbush, professional organizer and licensed massage therapist. After spending a quarter of a century cleaning out closets and two decades of massaging bodies, I've noticed layers and patterns in the way we store our stuff. I've seen firsthand how the organization of the home impacts the condition of the body. I'm fascinated by the accumulation of stuff and how what we hold on to informs our identities and how much we can transform when we decide to let things go hello hello friends i'm just gonna sit and talk to you all while i do my packing for my impending trip to new york city i am taking my daughter with me and i am gonna go work for some of my favorite people in the world and some of my first clients and every time I am heading to the city that I love so very, very much, which uh, fortunately for me in the way I've set my life up, I get to do pretty consistently because it's a part of my world in a way that I always knew it would be ever since I was a teeny tiny little girl growing up in Texas Uh, every time I get ready to go, I switch into this other mode, my New York state of mind, you know, I get ready to get back into the New York groove and I can literally feel like this mitochondrial shift in my being. It's like my, my blood starts pumping faster. My responses are quicker. My... Uh, instincts are sharper. I just start to develop this, this other, it's like the electricity starts to crackle even before I get on the plane. So first off, I feel like I should apologize to everybody because it has taken me quite a while to put another episode out. And it's not because I don't absolutely love this experience of what I'm doing. As a matter of fact, I am working so much on this particular, uh, aspect of my personal growth that these, this, you know, perpetual pandemic reality is demanding that we all kind of pivot and shift and, and look at, at how, uh, what we went, the habits with which we went into the great pause, how are they serving us now that we're starting back up? And and really, like, the masks are coming off. You know, my kids are back to school without masks, um, some of them. My high schooler says that actually a lot of kids are still wearing the masks, and I can just sort of assume that even in high school, it's like a nice um, barrier for (laughs) that sort of social awkwardness that might grip us in our Teen years I think they'll probably come off a little more gradually this morning was the first time I got to enjoy my workout course my workout class without a mask on and that was amazing uh, just to see everybody's faces and to really um, walk into a container with the with the faith that we've participated in this um, public health mission missive mission that's that's gotten us to a place where we have the the strength and the fortitude to to renegotiate our experiences with one another and we've proven to ourselves as a species that although something incredibly devastating may come through and uh, shift the way that we engage with one another it's also been a really remarkable opportunity to see how resilient and adaptive our species is so there are a couple of things I want to talk about today and they kind of feed into one another And this energy that I have going back into New York City uh sunk cost fallacy and the way it fits into our experience um our the way we collect our belongings and the way we establish our routines And what I mean by that sunk cost fallacy is the idea that, um, whatever money or energy or resources we've sunk into a particular item or experience or, uh, whatever the case may be, wherever we've put it, that we can't really quit what we're doing there because we've invested so much time or energy or money into, this thing and that can be uh something that we keep around our our homes like oh i have to hang on to this because dot 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 because i spent money on it because i went out of my way to get it because it still has some use in it and i haven't finished using it all up meanwhile whether or not we're actually using the thing to our benefit is you know sometimes we are sometimes we're not sometimes it's actually just sitting there collecting dust but we've attached so much of our identity or our um, experience to the existence of this thing or the presence of this thing in our experience that we just don't even we can't really consider what our lives might be like without it now Some things, family heirlooms, things that are special and precious. Oh, I have this is where we go into my sunk cost fallacy. And and it's it does actually carry some real weight with it, some real emotional weight. I have I am in possession of a family heirloom in that is this 1920s, English oak jacobean dining table and chairs with leaves uh six chairs and this beautiful table that um i grew up with as it was our dining room table to start so my very first memories of family members driving from all around the country and gathering around our dining room table like that that table always just was like so solid and so um just extremely uh sturdy and just like had been the the gathering place for so many um i remember doing my homework around that table as a child i remember um receiving intense news, like big family decisions, places where the conversations would happen and in my family. And it had been passed down from my great grandmother on my dad's side. And I'm not sure whether or not that table actually ever spent time. It must have gone from his parents' house to my parents' house from his grandmother's house. And, uh, it just, gosh, it really did. It, it, it means a lot to me and it's totally not my style. Like nothing about this table is anything that I would ever choose for myself and my family. Um, it's, it's clunky. It's so heavy. It's so inconvenient. It barely fits in anywhere. Uh, To get it through a doorway, you practically have to take the door off the hinges. It's in the front room of our home because it literally couldn't fit through any other doorway. So if it was going to be there, it either had to be our dining table, which although it served my family literally for generations, my children managed to do more damage to it in four years than my family had done in four generations So we use it to keep our TV on and the chairs themselves have been splintered into bits. Uh, I have all of the pieces and the truth is it's worth restored, properly restored. It's worth more than I would ever pay for a table. I, I can't imagine a world in which I'd pay that much for a table and, um, to get it, to that state, to properly restore it, it costs more than I would ever spend on a table and chairs. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's worth five figures and it's it costs well into the upper four figures to have it properly restored with the chairs. And that's just like, it's not, is that ever going to happen? Is that ever going to happen for me? Well, I'll tell you what. The reason that I hang on to it is because it has come to represent for me in this journey, uh, this impossible achievement that I would like to hold space in my reality for the idea that I could someday easily afford to recover, refinish, repair, restore this beautiful old thing. But even then, do I want to move it with me forever and ever and ever? Okay. So this table and chairs had spent time in my sister's storage unit well before it came to me Uh, and it spent time in one of her homes and then went into the storage unit at her house and uh, lived there until my uh, husband's, a friend of the family uh, came and, and picked it up and brought it to us from Santa Cruz made the trip and, and went out of his way to pick up this piece of furniture and bring it to us in Portland. And so that's part of the sunk cost fallacy. I think, Oh, well, he went out of his way to go get it. And and, and that's, that means that I need to keep this table because we've gone through so many moves and it's seen so many wonderful and tragic <laughs> moments in my family we can't bear to part with it. So it, it just, it's, it's, it gets kind of ridiculous if you know what I'm saying. Like it gets really, it's just a table and chairs, right? Like why does it carry so much importance and weight to me? Nobody else in my family is going to care about it. Nobody else, like my sister is not, she's like, yeah, whatever. She gave it to me. You know, my brother certainly doesn't have the space for it in his living situation. My mom doesn't need it. She's got at least two tables that mean something to her. So I have this thing, right? So it's not taking up too much space and I'm able to use it. And I've allowed it to represent a goal that is really kind of enmeshed in my personal identity. Like this idea that I will one day be successful enough to restore it and put it somewhere like in a family home. That's a beautiful goal. It's a really beautiful goal. And then I realize I'm putting this pressure on myself that does not necessarily belong there. Now when I think about letting go of the table and chairs, I feel alternately giddy with that freed excitement and then sad, like, oh God, I'm letting go of something that i'm I'm somehow diminishing my family's experience or like it feels like it's it's just taken on an importance that's bigger than the table and chairs now i don't have an answer for this right now i really don't it's something that i'm working on and it's something that i think about when i'm going to launch into this next story i'm sure that you probably have something in your experience that that has this like level of importance maybe it's a family heirloom something that you'll never get rid of Maybe it's something that you're like, I don't really know why I let this thing take up so much space in my, um, so much. Is it paying rent? Is it living in my brain rent-free? That's what I kind of want to know about the items. Now, the truth of this particular table and chairs is that, uh, it's, it's still serving a purpose. And I do get real pleasure out of walking by it and keeping it clean. I do get real pain when I see how much damage my children continue to do to it, because even though I ask them to keep the the beverages, Sam is still fond of, you know, pouring out entire cans of fizzy water all over the table and, and buckling the veneer. And it, it's creating a greater job for the person in the future that has to repair it. But Part of this sunk cost fallacy says that like it doesn't matter how much damage I do to it right now because I'm gonna get it fixed eventually. This is a sunk cost fallacy that also will show up for us sometimes when we're getting ready to move or when we're getting ready to maybe start a cleanse. It's like the retox before the detox, as I've my friend Leah Murphy just referred to it. And that's a very real thing too. It's like we kind of want to give the woodworker an opportunity to prove his skills or give ourselves something to really work towards and feel proud of so this takes me into a conversation that i want to have on as i'm packing to get ready to go to new york city and this is where we enter into my ode to melody reed melody was a client of mine in new york city that I uh was a regular at the coffee shop where I worked and she came in consistently every day several times a day at least once or twice a shift with um she would come in whenever she would walk her dogs she had at least two maybe three maybe four at any given time that I remember and they were always like little like Maltese or Shih Tzu or Lhasa Apso or those little white, fluffy, face dogs, and uh, she always had this sort of like a, not a sadness about her, but a uh, just a defeated. She was just sort of like getting through her days. She just there was like a a weight to the way she would move through the day but she also has this gorgeous smile and a lightness to her as well that you could always see like that glimmer of sunshine peeking through the dark clouds that can just create rainbows you know and so i oh she heard me talking one day uh in the coffee shop about the work that I was doing with organizing. And she said, Oh, I need your help. I need your help so bad. And there was this sweetness in this desperation to her voice. And I said, sure, of course, uh, I would, this was back in, let's see, 99, 98. So, uh, she said, it's bad. It's really bad. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, it's never, nothing's too bad for me. I'm, this is my jam. This is what I do. And um, she lived in a space that was in the process of being renovated at that time into um, she lived in a residence hotel that was called the Henry Hudson. And this was right at the time that Ian Schrager of Studio 54 fame was buying up some spots in New York City and turning them into these little boutique hotels. And it was just like all the rage. So he was, he had purchased the Henry Hudson and was turning it into apartments and, or I'm sorry, into hotel rooms, into this fancy upscale hotel. And so they were trying to get into every single one of the apartment buildings, um, units so that they could have them for this swanky hotel. So Melanie was in this corner unit where she had like a full, Veranda. I mean, you had to kind of creep out through a window. It was a little bit tricky. But she had like a beautiful space. She was paying like $400 a month to live there. And uh, boy, did they want her out. And as they were negotiating and taking over the units one by one, um, and a funny side note, Henry Hudson was actually the, that was the first place I stayed when I came into New York City. I was rooming with a friend who was living there as a student at circle in the square anyway uh so i had spent time in that building as a temporary resident as a somebody who was crashing on the the floor of a dorm room um in when i first got there so anyway uh melanie i'm sorry melody uh melody would not leave this spot and when I entered her apartment, the first thing that I remember is that it was evident that she loved her animals, but it was also evident that her animals were loving up her space in a way that had gotten away from her, meaning that there was just, um, she needed a lot of, she. you couldn't really see the floor, but that hadn't stopped her dogs from using any corner that they could to relieve themselves and so there it was there was going to be a lot of work to do um when i say that i met her at a dark time in her life it was just it was a low point i think and i want to be respectful because i'm um, talking about somebody and i'm talking about their situation But I don't think it was a secret to the people that knew her that her life had gotten away from her and that she was overwhelmed by it all. And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. That was to reveal itself after we had peeled away part of the first layer. Okay, so I took a little break there to finish zipping up my... Suitcase and gather the last of my items before setting them by the front door. And I have just enough time to finish up with my Ode to Melody read before I head out into that big bird with my firstborn to the city that I love. Okay, so now I am huddled. In my closet if you can hear a slight difference in the uh, texture of my voice it's because I'm a little bit more mellow now and I can share with you my experience fully with this amazing human being okay so where were we melody would come into the coffee shop she was often looked like she was having a hard time hanging on but seriously like the sun peeking through the clouds. There was always this little glimmer of sweetness. Like she hadn't fully given in. She was on the edge of resignation. Uh, So I went to her apartment. I was a little astonished to see the state of it. I hadn't worked yet with the, the person from my first earlier episodes. He of the unbelievable horde. So this was something, and I had worked with others who had similar stacks of belongings, but Melody's was just like, she had just stopped. She had just stopped for a while. She was not moving forward. And it was evident in this tiny yet spacious, like it was just like one big room, but it had some different levels in this veranda and the top of this residence hotel that would become one of the uh, premier evening spots and, and away places for New York City. I don't even know how it is still there, but this is my promise to you. I'm going to take Gia and we're going to go find out what's happening at the Henry Hudson. And if they still have that amazing bar, she can come in there and uh, enjoy putting her feet up with her mama and looking out at the skyline while I tell her this story of Melody Reed. So uh, we started with the basics. We started with the bathroom because she was uh, like many others that I knew in the city. And I, again, like I say, I'm trying to speak with um, generosity and compassion about someone who was in a situation that had escaped them. But she was not able to use her bathroom to get ready because her closet had Creeped out, crept out into she was using her shower rod as a clothing rod, and this is not at all unusual in fact, in several early episodes of sex in the city it's a joke that you know like Carrie is keeping her sweaters in the oven because she doesn't cook, and she has an overflow of belongings so um the and then beyond that the the as is the case often then the The bathtub, that's a lot of square footage in a New York City apartment. She had an actual bathtub. And uh, that is, you know, something that you can fill up floor to ceiling with, um, you know, in, in some situations, people sleep in smaller spaces and call it a bedroom in that city. And it's cute if you think I'm joking. I'm not. There's another story there, and I'll tell you all about it on another day. But this is an ode to Melody Reed. Oh, Melody, we started with the bathroom so that she could have it back so that she could see what a beautiful human being she was so that she could see in her own bathroom at her own clean mirror with her own clear counter and her own clear floor and her own cleansing tub that she didn't need to go to the gym around the corner to take care of her daily ablutions. Let's give you back the most vital piece of real estate in feeling like an actual deserving human. It took a few passes through the apartment before I got to the dusty bag on the top highest shelf in the top highest corner of the apartment. She had these floor-to-ceiling shelves on one end of this... Uh, I would say that the overall, it was probably about 400, 300 square feet, perhaps, and in, in laid out in a fat L shape so that there was like a little bit of uh tucking away that could be done, but it mostly felt like a big box. But on one side of the fat L, there were floor to ceiling shelves and a desk that held up manuals, lots of manuals. Uh old, old manuals, all for computers, for coding, for digital artwork, for digital photography she It was clear that even in all of this, Melody was on the cutting edge of her field, and she was even for the way that she might come in and seem a little bit ditzy or off. it turns out Melody was a professor of digital photography and, and other computer type classes that a Luddite like myself cannot even begin to wrap my brain around. And she was really, um, she was really very forward thinking. And as I got to spend more time with her in her space, she revealed more and more of herself to me. And part of her story that she didn't shy away from was that she was recovering from a drug addiction that had robbed her of some of her best years. And, um, she was coming out on the other side of that and, uh, her friends and her family and her dogs were always a part of what kept her going. So, uh, before I actually, let's, let's be clear before I got to the bathroom, actually, that was the first big step I took. The first thing we did clearly was clean up the animal, uh, waste and, and go through and, and, and really like do what we could with what was, what was evident and available. Um, and I don't feel like I'm telling too many tales out of school because, Melody was very honest about, I'm speaking about her in the past tense. That's a spoiler alert, right? But Melody was very clear about who she was as a person. I just didn't realize that there were so many layers to her, which is ridiculous because God, we're all such magnificent layered creatures, right? So the next thing that we did after cleaning up the animal waste and clearing out the bathroom so that she had space to show herself thought she was, uh, worthy of, of cleansing herself in that space was, and this was happening. Um, I was seeing her several days a week over the course of many weeks and in New York city, even at that time, uh, she was like, I can't afford your rates. There's no way I can afford you. So I said to her at the very beginning of our time together, Um, I said, the first thing I said was, don't worry about it. We'll work it out. Let's just take an assessment and figure out what we're going to do. And when I walked in and realized that there was just so much to be done, it was like, Oh man, this woman needs my help. And I didn't want to walk away from her. And I didn't, I said, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. So as we started working together, I said to her at a certain point here, uh, let's, let's strike a deal. How about, we work for, I work in exchange for all of the spare change that I find and whatever I find above and beyond my rates will split the difference. And she was like, Oh, give me a break. There's not that much spare change here. Uh, here's spoiler alert. Number two, there was so, anyway, we went uh once the sorting began, it all went pretty quickly because things in Melody's life fell into very specific categories. And that was uh natural foods and her dogs and he heal- feeding them as well as if not better than she would feed herself, although she had Very healthy eating habits, which is something else that I've found to be very interesting in most of the experiences that I've had with people who have accumulated more than the average amount of stuff. All of the ones that I have personally worked with had what you would call like health nut eating habits, like super quote unquote healthy uh, to them. And, um, it was, or like really reliant on their sorts of supplements or their sorts of ways to heal themselves outside of mainstream medicine, but just like a real awareness of what their bodies needed on this particular level in, in, to their minds, to, to their belief system. Okay. So it, it. Her, it was like you would walk in and there was her kitchen and it was just sort of exposed and that was uh its own project obviously because a lot of that space was devoted to the care and keeping of her dogs which by this time like I said I think she had three of them in there but she had had four or five maybe so uh, there were clothes, so many clothes, so many, many, many clothes that it was evident that this woman had a life of high fashion and that she loved to put herself together. Uh, there were, um, books and manuals about, um, the things that I mentioned before her advanced knowledge for graphic design and, uh, and, and digital photography and, um, then odd fun things like roller skates, but belts, so many belts and so many, it was just, it was just, and then underneath all of that somewhere was her bed, which was a futon, which she could pull out into a bed, but she wasn't really sleeping too comfortably. And, uh, it just was like, what happens when you're just living out of the pile and the pile is a very easy thing to create when all of the rooms are the same. And then you kind of have to zone out inside that space where you're going to be doing your living. Oh, and musical instruments. She was sure. very, very, very musically inclined. So anyway, uh, as we went through things, um, she just, what a remarkable person. She big, be- the giving her back her bathroom was remarkable and then there was a day um w- after some serious progress had been made and we had been able to like just the peeling off and the putting together and the dragging out of the things like every day we were just dragging so much out of there it was like just can, like getting her to see that she only needed what worked for her in that moment uh now again at another point the there was a point where I reached up on the very very tippy top shelf in the very 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 furthest corner and I pulled down a box a bag a a pink bag from the men's store pink and I said what's in here and she just like collapsed and they were the ashes of her dog that had passed that had been her companion through her recovery and helped her face down her addictions and that bag and its contents represented to her her stopping point it was where she gave up that was the moment that she had stopped caring about herself and she still had to get herself up and take care of her other pups so she was there for them but she couldn't be there for herself anymore because her companion that had pulled her through her addiction was no longer with her and when you (sighs) when you see grief and you see the weight that it has on people and how it can arrest them in this space where they lost their way, they lost their anchor, they lost their, uh, their shining star, right? Like that, that feeling of being unmoored. The thing is life doesn't stop happening and then it just starts to pile up. Right. And then it just kind of takes over. That is where, when you can still see that sparkle of sunshine through someone's darkest days, and you realize that that they just need the support of somebody to show up for them, like the judgment of how they keep their space, or the fact that the rest of her dogs could have free reign, like all the judgment for that, it just evaporates, like it's just gone. Because you see that this is a human being that's doing absolutely everything they can to make it through another day. So, uh, as a massage therapist and as an organizing consultant, being allowed to share that time and that space with people when they're at the crux of who they are, with who they were, and who they can be oh my gosh, what a beautiful opportunity to show up and just be a vessel, a conduit for the energies to help move things, right? It's why I love what I do. It's why I want to be doing this work and like just peeling back the layers and just getting deeper and deeper with people about the hows and whys of what we allow to accumulate in our space. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for uh, sitting with me while I process that bit. I've got to get to the airport. Um, I'm going to record the third and final installment from New York City, and I'll tell you guys, uh, wrap it up uh, with how I found out about where Melody went and my ode to Melody Reed. Um, thank you for again, holding space for my tears. Take care. Talk to you in a minute. Hey, check out this ad too. Uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to actually tell you to check out this ad because I'm going to see if it works. So you tell me, talk to you soon. I'll be right back. Okay, guys. Hello. I'm back. I'm in New York city. And if you hear any sounds of rumbling or what might sound like the earth being jackhammered open, well, refer to the first part of this where I tell you I'm in New York City. And that's kind of like just the thrum of the the Big Apple um, doing its thing in the daytime hours. Oh God, what a great 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 feeling it is to be on this uh chunk of rock it really does just speak to a part of my soul and and keep me it just it feels like coming home every time I'm here there are a couple of places on this planet that treat me that way every time and this is definitely one of them um my daughter is off on a solo jaunt through Soho she is on her first independent trip outside of the little five-block radius that she's comfortable traipsing from where we're staying. She's uh, taking, it, taking the train all the way down to canal and working her way back up. It's just something that is so exciting. And thank goodness, modern technology means she can share her location and I can watch that little dot creep up uh, Broadway and, and canal and do all of the little trawling. And it's a, it's a really wonderful feature, you know, in this, uh, age of modern technology. All right. So I want to bring you the little final chapter in my ode to Melody Reed, although the story is endless. Um, how did I come to want to do this episode about her? Well, I knew when I wanted to do a podcast that she was definitely somebody that I wanted to try to find and talk to, and the way that my awareness of her passing came to me was one of those typically New York stories. I was sitting down to watch In the Heights with my kids when it appeared on Disney Plus, and I was just thrilled to see that the part of Abuela is played by Olga Mérides, who was also a regular in the coffee shop where I worked um, all those years ago. And what I loved about this location, like the coffee shop is going to get its own episode, definitely at least one, if not several But what I loved about this place was it was at the edge of Columbus Circle, like kind of like at the sternum of the city where the heart is running right underneath it. You're on the edge of so many things that um, the people that would come and go from that subway station and then run to work or who lived along 57th Street You know, I wasn't aware when I started working there of the significance of 57th or how just how many flagship designer stores were there or like even the neighborhood. And we were kind of perched on the edge of um, just a lot of really fascinating things happening in that neighborhood. And this when I began working at this coffee shop, it was even like before Starbucks had taken over. They weren't all over New York City. So we were kind of like the only place around that was serving that type of coffee shop vibe, if you will. and um, But it was just a tiny little place. And so many people would go through there that worked at publishing houses or television networks or uh, film and production studios, fascinating people. But a lot of um, people that do the more pedestrian jobs or maybe are doing the the behind-the-scenes work or maybe the character actors that come in and you're like, oh, my gosh, how do I know you? And you realize it's because they've been in everything. But they're not necessarily household names, but they're definitely household faces. Um, So many characters coming through that place. And one of those was this wonderful woman, Olga, who um, it wasn't until the movie Evita came out starring Madonna and Jonathan Price that I realized that she was actually a very accomplished Broadway and film actress. And um, she played one of Madonna's sisters back in Argentina. And her, just as a human being, she just always glowed with such a kindness and such an approachability that nothing about the way she would come in and order her coffee led me to believe that she was actually acting with some of the biggest stars out there in her nine to five or her five to nine or whatever the hours might be that a working actor is busting their chops. So busting their butts. Sorry, I'm busting her chops. Anyway, uh, what I'm saying is that I was watching In the Heights with my family and I saw that she played abuela. And I was just so excited. I'm telling my family, oh, it's Olga. I know her. And I'd seen her pop up, and pop up on TV and in different places in the years since. That's something else that my family's gotten used to is that anytime I'm watching television, I can be like, that person used to come into the coffee shop or that person used to work with this person that I used to go out with in New York City. And that part, like just all the ways that life in the city gives you this opportunity to have very pedestrian interactions with folks that might actually be doing really amazing things, but you wouldn't know it because they're just like, going through the city like everybody else, getting their stuff, getting their coffee, getting their groceries, doing their day-to-day. Anyway, I was so excited to see that Olga was there and did a little bit of like looking at what she'd been working on. And then later, fast forward several months, Encanto came out. And after listening to uh, Olga singing through In the Heights, as soon as as grandmother, as Abuela in Encanto opened her mouth to sing, I was like, wait a minute, that's Olga's singing voice. And I know it wasn't her speaking voice, but I looked on the credits and sure enough, Olga's providing the soundtrack, the singing voice for Abuela in Encanto. So I was just like, obviously, again, excited. You guys, it's Olga, it's Olga. And the fact that I talk about this woman, like I know her, even though it's been like, you know, 25 years, 20 plus years and Uh, you know, she's obviously like, not necessarily, like, when you have that experience of serving somebody their daily fix, their Java on such a regular basis, you really do kind of cultivate this sense of intimacy, like you kind of can see people in their moments between the scurrying here and there, they're just kind of Coming in to refuel or recharge or calm down for a second. So we would just get all of these wonderful windows into people's lives. And so there are people that were former customers of the coffee shop where I just still will talk about them. Like they're like, oh my God, I know that person. We used to hang out. But really, it's been decades and they have no idea who I am. I was just that girl at the coffee shop. Anyway, um, when I was looking at Olga and what she's been working on one of the things I noticed was this gorgeous headshot where she's just like so naturally herself, so beautiful. And it said, and this was on one of her social media accounts. It was, uh, these are photos taken by my friend, the dear and talented Melody Reed, who tragically lost her life to COVID, um, in 2020. And, It just kind of like, that hit me like a a ton of bricks. Number one, well, it wasn't a stretch for me to imagine that Olga and Melody would have been friends. They were both coming into the coffee shop. They both lived on the block, maybe in the same building. Maybe they were neighbors and had been this whole time. But, you know, I moved away from New York, but the people who stayed there stayed and had very rich and full lives. So when I saw that Melody had passed, um, I started to seek her out on social media and see what sort of a digital footprint she left behind. And it, what a pleasure and a joy and just such a a window into um, the personal transformations and the many, many chapters we can have in our experience. Melody had continued her uh, professorial career and had provided valuable education to so many people who gave their, uh, you know, on the virtual memorial pages that were sh- so many people showing up to talk about what an impact she had made in her life, in their lives. And, um, and and then just seeing her Instagram feed and so many beautiful photos she had taken and so many beautiful memories that she had had that are still out there in the interwebs, in the ether, uh, in the cloud for us to visit and and pay homage to the folks that, that we love and we miss. Um, I think that that's one of the really valuable things about technology and one of the ways that we can try to even use it to our benefit to release ourselves from that sunk cost fallacy that might follow us around. And then I'm going to use this to wrap it up and tell you a couple of my favorite things, my favorite memories about melody. Um, We can release ourselves from all of the things, all of the belongings and continue to make such dramatic impacts and, and, and waves and, and show up for folks and remain connected. And if there's a willingness to even convert some of the stuff to a digital footprint, there are so many ways that folks can still honor the memory of people that they have loved um, that have passed and just sort of like, it just sort of is a, not like it's a marker, but it, it, or like a tree plant they just become these like interesting memorial sites. And I feel like there are so many beautiful things that people will say. If you go to visit the Facebook page of a loved one who's departed and you see all the the outpouring of the testimonials of just like the the memories that people have, like it can really make you stop and, and wonder why do we wait until folks have gone? to say these wonderful things about them? Have have you said those things to them while they're still here? And if there are items that you have in your belonging that you know you want to share with others and that you don't want to keep with you forever and ever, there is absolutely nothing wrong with just sharing things with people now while you're here to enjoy the experience of sharing them with one another, if that makes any sense. Like, if there's something that you know that you want uh, somebody to have, like, go ahead and give it to them. Like, we don't always have to wait until we're gone to release ourselves from some of the material possessions that we keep around us. I don't know if this has turned slightly maudlin, but the truth of it is, I just feel like there's so much of a story that we have in our belongings, and when it's all said and done, at the end of the party, when we're going back over all of the memories that we've made of the event of the evening, and we're cleaning up the, the residue of the festivities, what are the big pieces that we're leaving and that we're taking away? Uh, <laughs> so... Melody taught me a lot about sunk cost fallacy because there was a particular day when she was feeling rather exhausted and she was laying on her futon in the middle of the room while we're like making, I'm putting things away and tidying and organizing clothes. And she said to me, there was a belt that we got rid of. And I am really bummed because when I woke up this morning, I thought that belt would really have, tied this outfit together. And I went to look for it and it was gone. And I just looked at her for a moment and I smiled and I was like, is that the biggest problem you have today, Melody? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, (laughs) that's not a bad problem to have, is it? So like, You know, when you're releasing yourself from some items that you that may have outlived their promise and potential, if there are a couple of things that make it through that process that you're like, Oh, man, I could have kept that I could have gotten some use out of it. Yes, it's true. But that's sunk cost fallacy tugging at you and you can release yourself from that. Because the truth is, you know, I mean, maybe it would have tied the outfit together. But Maybe it doesn't really matter, and you know, you can give yourself some grace around those things. Another really awesome memory that I had was uh, hearkening back to the part where I told you guys that I told Melody I would work for spare change. who, she had so many handbags, and each of those handbags had wallets. And because there had been this huge chunk of time in her life where she had just kind of like, like, like I said, let some things go, she was she would just accumulate spare change at the bottom of each one of these handbags so like when i talk about handbags i'm talking about well over 50 and each one of them had several multiple piles and dollars and things and in, in spare change and loose change that had just accumulated and piled up and the very first day <laughs> we combined as much Spare change as we could carry down to the she just lived a couple of blocks away from the I think it was an associated market that had a coin star machine. And we went over with our <laughs> filled up her cart, broke the wheel on the cart under the weight of the spare change. <laughs> because we had in that one trip, there was over $400 in quarters, dimes, nickels, and pennies that we had accumulated $400. And that was just in the first pass. And there were still like we hadn't even that was just like when you're just like fishing in a barrel, there was like so much of it. So I told her, given my rates at the time, like, like I had said, you know, we would, we would just like hang on to the spare change and work for that. She was so stunned and so startled to see that she actually already had the money to pay for this service and that she was sitting on it and not aware of it. That's another way that sunk cost fallacy comes into play. Now, the final one that I want to talk about that just is, it is the thing that lights me up to consider, because I think it may have been the last time that I had myself in this particular situation, which is on eight wheels. Uh, That was, I believe it was the last time I went roller skating. If I'm not, God, I don't know that I've ever even taken my kids. We've gone ice skating several times. Anyway, uh, roller skating. I put on her roller skates that I told you earlier in the episode she was hanging on to. They fit me. And oh my gosh, if I didn't race through the halls of that half fancy schmancy hotel, half holdout residence hotel, and just raced around those and she was just getting such a big kick out of it because and I was too, it was, they were carpeted hallways, long hallways where I could just really go for it. And, and that was part of how, uh, I would spend my afternoons at the end of my sessions there. It was just like, okay, can I just do a couple, couple of catwalks in the hallway on the skates? And she was just like, oh yeah. So, uh, she had a history as did her sister of, um, just being those roller skating mavens that you see in Central Park on those glorious, sunshiny days in their short shorts uh, and their crop tops, just with their headphones on, working the moves. She was one of those. She was one of those characters. What a great time I had in the many, many hours that I was able to spend with her in that tiny spot in the Hedry Hudson. And what a joy to know that she went on to continue to provide so much knowledge and so much space for people to grow their skills. Uh, I love you, Melody Reed. Thank you. And thanks, you guys, for listening. Have a great day. Hey, I also said I would tell you what this podcast is not going to be. This podcast is not going to be a place where we judge people for what they hang on to or how long it takes them to let go of the things that they may be dragging around with them from spot to spot in their experience. This podcast is not going to be fancy. This podcast is not going to be very well edited. This podcast is going to be messy magic. Me throwing it out there and sharing with you the stuff that I just can't keep to myself anymore. So thanks so much. We're all ultimately just walking each other home. So thanks for joining me on this journey. And if you're enjoying, please follow along. Please leave a review. Find me wherever you're getting your podcasts and take care. And thank you so much for being here. Anything else you need to know, you'll probably find in the show notes. If not, drop me a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Have a great day, you guys. Thanks for joining me. What's up with your stuff?